Welcome to the ACO Show. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Matt Weimer. Dr. Weimer is the Chief Medical Officer of Valley Health Systems in Huntington, West Virginia. He talks to Josh about what it's like for a federally qualified health center to be part of an accountable care organization and some of the ways that team-based care has made medical practice better for doctors and better for patients. This episode was produced by Francis Bentley and Aaron Wing. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Matt Weimer. Dr. Weimer is the Vice President of Health Services and Chief Medical Officer at Valley Health Systems. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. So why don't you just start by telling us what is Valley Health Systems? Where is it? What kind of services does it provide? So Valley Health Systems is a large uh, federally qualified health center based out of Huntington, West Virginia. It's the largest health center in the state. And really by comparison to other health centers around the country, it's, it's large kind of across the board. So we have 35 or so locations in several counties in West Virginia, one county in Ohio, and we provide comprehensive primary care, behavioral health, substance use disorder treatment, and other services with a focus on the underserved, but really to any patient who wants to, to, to use us for their health care. And what is a federally qualified health center? That's a great question. And FQHC is a primary care outpatient um, health care system or center where patients are really able to be seen without regard for their insurance status or their ability to pay. There's a real focus on comprehensive care uh, with a primary care focus, but in the recent years, it's really merged into other areas of healthcare. So as I said, behavioral health and substance use disorder treatments, optometry, dental uh, health, pharmacy, and other services that really provide that comprehensive picture. And where does the funding come from? There is federal funding through HRSA, and um, along with that funding comes several requirements. There are also enhanced reimbursements through Medicare and Medicaid, which really does lift up the system and allow us to provide the care that we are providing. We are nonprofits, and so we really depend on that enhanced reimbursement. And then we have the usual billing mechanisms that you would see with private payers as well. Mm -hmm. And what's your role there? I mentioned your title, but what does that mean day to day? My title is rather long, and the reason that it is that way is that it speaks to the comprehensive nature of what health centers are doing. So um, it's not enough to say chief medical officer in some health centers because it's so much more than just the medical primary care part of what we're doing. It brings in, as I mentioned, pharmacy, dental, optometry, and other services. And so our CEO thought it was important to capture all that we're doing by having that vice president over all of the health services that are happening at the, at the health center. And so I'm overseeing all of those different service lines for our patients. And you're still taking care of patients directly, right? Yes, about 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Valley Health is part of the Allidade network. How did it come about that an FQHC joined Allidade? I believe that Allidade had some communication with our state PCA, the Primary Care Association, and so that was really the driver. Uh, before we joined the ACO with Allidade, Valley Health Systems and really all the FQHCs that are in our ACO were not engaged in a really robust way in in value-based care. We were doing some small programs with different payers, but we weren't really truly engaged. I think we had a foot in the water, but it was once we joined this ACO that we really dove in and started swimming. So it's been 
a great experience, and it was really born out of some conversations that happened again at the PCA level, I believe. Mm -hmm. And what value do you think it's brought to either the health center or your patients? The health center mission is to to provide cost-effective, high-quality care. And again, it's really without regard for the patient's ability to pay, without regard for insurance status. But I think that the ACO, there's such a dovetailing of what the health center mission is and what the mission of the ACO is. So we're, we are addressing the quadruple aim every day, and this is really um, helping us to sharpen our focus on those goals of, mm-hmm. of increasing quality, decreasing costs, taking care of the whole patient. And is it hard to focus on accountable care organization patients when it's you know, not the majority of the patient panel for any particular doctor? It's created some challenges, uh, challenges that we are taking on head on, but Across the country, Medicare patients make up about 9 or 10% of FQHC patients. And so we have a large number of Medicaid patients. We have a lot of uninsured patients and patients with other payers as well. So there is some pull, uh, you know, things that are trying to take our attention other directions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The good thing is, is that, again, the the underlying goals are really the same. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can apply the things that we are learning to do through our work in the ACO to really all of our patient populations. One of the things Allied tries to bring to its partner practices is data. Are there pieces of data that you find helpful that Allied's been able to provide, or even for your non-Medicare patients? You know, what, what sort of data is useful day to day? This work has really opened our eyes to the types of diagnoses that we are conveying, we're not conveying as a case may be, to payers and the importance that that has in developing that overall picture of, of the practice that you're managing. And, and then, the, of course, the cost and the dollars that are attached to that. But the clinical data is where I really find value as a clinician. And so learning about what's happening with my patients that they didn't really know about or that I didn't know about, or the patient knew they had some immunization somewhere, but they weren't really sure what it was, where it was given, or when it was given. That information is really helpful to me, and I use that in my day-to-day practice. I think in my practice and in our ACO, the next level that we're working towards where we really haven't tapped too much into it yet is the cost data that's out there where you can really get a handle on those patients who are starting to really increase in cost, going to the hospital, going to the ER, and you may not know it. So finding out about that and having an opportunity to intervene and really help control those costs, but more importantly, help improve the quality of care for the patient is where we're really heading with with what we're doing. And that's really, for me, extremely exciting. Now, when I look at these infographic heat maps of America, mm-hmm. you know, you can sort of guess where I'm going with this, that mm-hmm. West Virginia just shows a bright red in so many areas that are not good, you know, poverty, opioid overdoses. What kind of challenges does that bring to your day-to-day work? Yeah, you said it. West Virginia's number one, and we really are number one in a lot of ways. It's a beautiful state with really incredible people, but there's a history of poverty there that has led to, or at least contributed to, being number one in all the wrong things as well. And what I mean by that is, as you mentioned, obesity, opioid use, and tobacco use, uh, both are are problematic in our state. We've led the country for a long time in opioid overdose deaths, and that's presented a lot of challenges. We're also leading the way in terms of um, some of those indicators you don't want, like diabetes, um, heart disease, obesity, tobacco use. And so that does create significant challenges for us in our state. It's, it's expensive to care for our patients. When we're trying to address some of the complex medical conditions that we face in West Virginia, and we are looking at social determinants of health, poverty, housing instability, transportation, food insecurity are really uh, prominent where we are and just exacerbates the complexity of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You did mention that you have behavioral health services and substance abuse services. 
is it sufficient? No, I, I don't think we're there yet. We are making a lot of headway. And so where I live, there are estimated to be about 10,000 people that are facing opioid use disorders. Now, not all of these people are necessarily candidates for medication-assisted treatment programs. There are other ways to treat that particular diagnosis, that problem. But with that said, Valley Health is the largest provider of these services at, where we are working, and we have about 600 patients in an MAT program. And so if you think about 10,000 out there, 600 in our program, which is the largest in our city, in our area, there's a ways to go. Uh, again, there are other community partners doing other types of treatment that are effective, whether it's peer recovery and things like that. But um, we have we have a ways to go, and, and that really comes down to having the resources and the people who are qualified to care for these patients and the way that they need to be cared for. I actually know a little bit about the services you give, and you're way ahead of most of the country, that the answer to almost every clinical setting in this country, not even just FQHCs, is no, it's not sufficient. Absolutely. And yes, I mean, despite everybody's best efforts, it's such a complex problem, and it's so widespread that it's really hard to, for anybody to be sufficient at this point, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. And what do you offer by way of opioid treatment? Primarily, we offer medication, medication-assisted treatment. So we are using buprenorphine products along with really intensive counseling. Some of that's dictated by Medicaid. So there are certain requirements for a number of individual and group visits that patients have to maintain in order to get the medication um, when they refill it uh, every so often. So um, that model works pretty well and we apply that across the board. It may be a Medicaid requirement, but we use that same model for all of our patients. And so there's fairly intensive, again, individual and group counseling sessions as well as appointments with prescribers. And do most of the primary care providers write prescriptions for buprenorphine, or is it primarily certain specialists? We have a small group of family medicine and internal medicine uh, physicians, psychiatrists, and nurse practitioners who are who are prescribing, and then a, relative, a rather large number of therapists, psychologists, and social workers who are providing the therapy component. And was it hard to get the primary care providers to to get certified for that? You know, sometimes we've hit pushback. It's been challenging in that we have dozens of primary care providers in our system and only uh, a small handful who are pr- providing this particular treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's in part because we don't have the therapists to to provide that component of the, of the treatment. So we, we're a large system that's spread out geographically and we, we have centers where we're doing the MAT uh, programs. We can't at this point, although we're trying, provide the therapy um, services that are required to really have a good solid program. And so it's not necessarily uh, for lack of interest, but just one of the challenges in in terms of recruitment and retention of providers to to, to do the therapy that's required. Changing the subject a little bit, some Validaid's initiatives that we really focus on are getting providers to do more annual wellness visits and more transitional care management visits. Um, When patients have a lot more issues of social determinants of health, do, does that complicate the issue? You know, do you find those visits helpful? The wellness visits are extremely helpful. The social determinants do impact the ability of patients to get in for these visits. And so we try to find ways to weave these visits into the routine visits that we're already having. If somebody's coming in twice a year for diabetes and hypertension uh, visits, we will convert what would be a typical visit into a wellness visit and really address those chronic diseases and even acute problems at the same time so that we're not causing the patient to have to come back for another visit. They may have, again, transportation issues or um, concerns about co-pays, although, you know, we try to address that with them in, in that the wellness visit shouldn't have any or doesn't have any. Uh, patients 
are getting used to these visits and we're having to um, try kind of meet them where they are. If they're not really sure what it's all about, if they're reluctant, we just try to convert a normal visit into a wellness visit, show them the value of that visit, and then they're more likely to come back the next year. And for the transitional care management visits, you mentioned a lot of transportation problems. Do you find that it's particularly hard to get patients to come on in after they've had a hospital admission? In my practice, which is not as rural as some in our ACO, that's not been as much of a challenge. But I do hear that from my partners in the ACO. And and you can imagine why. If somebody's frail and elderly and living alone, it's, it's, it's hard enough to bounce back from a hospitalization. But then to ask them to leave the home again for an appointment can be challenging. So we really have to help them understand why that's so important. So one of the things I'd love to talk about is just physician buy-in. Getting providers to switch from the fee-for-service mindset to the value-based model is hard in all settings. We have seen particular challenges in the FQHCs where the physicians are salaried. So if they do better population health, if they prevent hospitalizations, they'll feel good that they're doing the right thing, but we can't financially incentivize them in quite the same way. You know, the, the accountable care model is at the end of the year, if we've kept our patients healthy and saved Medicare money, um, then there's money for the providers to incentivize them to keep doing that. In the FQHCs, people are on salary and you typically don't make any more money depending on how the patients do. Have you had any issues or successes with incentivizing your providers and getting them to, to buy into this new mindset? Yeah, in our ACO, I've seen both successes and challenges. So in my practice at Valley Health, we, we do offer an incentive for doing this work. Um, to get back to what you were saying as you were asking the question, you know, it, it, it is challenging to help employed or salaried providers really understand the underlying business model. They are doing what they do in the health center world because they want to see patients and they want to provide good care, but they don't want to really worry about that business side of things. And I have to give so much credit to the private practice doctors out there who are out there, you know, taking care of patients with the same passion, but also managing a business. Um, many of us chose to not go that route for, for various reasons, but when it comes to the FQHC providers, um, we, we do have to get creative in how we help them understand the importance of this. You know, we are driven by this prospective payment system, this PPS model of reimbursement, and that's an important part of what we do. It, it really um, lifts up our system again so that we can meet our mission. But we've known for a long time that there's going to be this shift, this um, transition into value-based care, and we, we're never quite sure how and when that would happen. We're seeing it now, and I think that we're helping our providers understand that. But again, they don't see it in their paychecks right now. They don't see it. They don't look at the bottom line. They don't really understand it. So we have to find ways to help them understand it. I think that ultimately what we do is we we do give some incentives and in some of our health centers and people respond to that. But we also really make the case for better quality care. We make the case for the improvement on, on the overall healthcare system, the, the benefits to society. And I think we also try to show how that team-based approach that provides this type of care for patients really improves the, the physician and, and provider's quality of life, their, their work-life balance, their level of stress, burnout, moral injury, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think that they'll really, they have been really responding to those forces more so maybe than the business case. How do you implement team-based care? We have employed a number of people, providers of care and other members of the team who are not directly providing services that are reimbursable. So clinical pharmacists, care managers and navigators, um, certain other uh, ancillary members of the team who are 
doing the behind the scenes work of population health. They're looking at who's out there, um, you know, where patients are getting care somewhere else and we don't know about it. They're the ones who are getting into the Allidata app and, and looking at the data and helping the clinicians understand what's happening with their practices. And so in that way, they, they offer enhancements to the care that I'm providing because when a patient's coming to see me for a complex hospital follow-up, a lot of that work to find out what's happened and what the medications are and how the patient's doing is done well in advance, sometimes a couple of days before the appointment. It's already sort of been understood and it's wrapped up in a neat little package for me so that when I walk in to see the patient, I don't have to do that really taxing work of figuring out what's going on. I can just get at the core of what I'm trying to do, which is help that patient stay well. That's great. Have people come to appreciate that? Absolutely. If there's any case that I can make to my colleagues, my physician and provider colleagues about why this work is so important, it's those types of scenarios, seeing the benefit in the day-to-day practice and the efficiency of what they're doing in providing that high-quality care without some of the frustrations that we've had historically. So we've spent a bit of time on, on the how, on the how you're doing population health and involving the whole team. Let's think about the why. It doesn't sound like it's easy work. What, what gets you going? That's a great question. So the why for me really comes down to the benefit for the patient. We talk about the improvements on patient care, on the practice itself, and, and the benefits for society. But at the end of the day, what we're really focused on is, is what kind of care can we provide that maximizes the health of our patients, that reduces their costs, that reduces their stress and the burden of, of medical conditions on them. So as I do this work and I see those benefits, it just really recharges me. And I, again, I try to talk to my colleagues about that and help them see that benefit. And all of the providers that I work with, every, every physician I've ever met, when they, when they see that, when they hear that, um, they respond to that favorably. And so I, I keep going back to that as I do this work. It is challenging. Um, all, all of medical care is challenging. And this transition to this new model is particularly tough, but we're getting there. And again, we just keep that why in the back of our minds. And, and it, it reinforces, for me, the, the motivation to, to go through the challenges to get this work done. Nice. I appreciate you coming in. Keep doing great stuff out there. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it.